Hi there, I'm Celeste Headley, author, journalist, and host of the new podcast, Freeway Phantom. This incredibly important show reinvestigates the tragic murders of at least six young Black girls in Washington, D.C. between 1971 and 1972. The case is significant for many reasons. One, the case was never solved, and these families have been waiting for justice for over 50 years. Two, the stories of these Black girls were never given the proper attention they deserved. This points to an even bigger issue of bias in both the media and police investigations. And sadly, that's an issue that still persists today. This case is an incredibly important one to me and my entire team, who've worked tirelessly to bring this crucial story to light. Here, we've prepared the first episode for you to listen to in its entirety. We encourage you to keep listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find Freeway Phantom on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You're listening to Freeway Phantom, a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, Black Bar Mitzvah, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My mother was very strict with us. So the rule is when she leaves, the door is closed and locked and you don't come out that door. And her favorite saying was, I don't care if Jesus Christ knock on that door and say, open it. You better not open it. So that was the rule. We didn't open the door for anybody. We were playing around. We were watching TV, everybody else was playing around. When my sister Valerie knocked on the door. I think I told him at first, don't say anything. She knocked harder. And I was like, what? She was like, open the door. And I was like, no, mama not home. Open the door. And I was like, what do you want? She said, I want one of y'all to go to the store for me. I said, Mama, not home. We can't come out. Baby said, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Because she didn't want us to start a fight. Her and Valerie went out. I guess about 20, 30 minutes, I'm like, she ain't back yet. So I went across the hall where I knew my sister was, Valerie, to see if she was back. And she was like, no. Now I'm getting scared because she not home and my mother going to be coming soon and I'm going to get the worst of it because I'm the oldest. I told them to stay in the house. I'm going to run up to the store. So I took the shortcut to go to the store and made it back. She still wasn't at the house. I was hollering at Valerie because I was upset and I was scared because she hadn't gotten back home and she sent her to the store. I don't know what to do. And the next thing I know was getting late in the evening. People just started coming around, you know, from the neighborhood and the neighbors. And then somebody was like, okay, we're gonna just go searching. Everybody was like in groups of fours and five, out looking. And I don't remember when the police came, but I remember that night detectives came. I didn't really think about the police 
But when the detectives came, I really realized this was big, you know, it was serious. They never spoke to us, they talked to my mother. You know, I didn't really know what was happening, what was going on. It didn't make sense. And the only thing that I was not understanding, period, was, where's my sister? Why nobody found her? What's going on? If you look up Freeway Phantom, you might find out a little bit about this strange and tragic case, but in all likelihood, you're not going to find out much. You'll learn that during the early 1970s, a serial killer murdered at least six young black girls in the Washington, D.C. area. You might learn their names. You might hear about a strange note left by the killer. You may even come across a few suspects, but not much else. And that's what makes the case of the Freeway Phantom so very, very strange. My name is Celeste Headley. I'm a journalist, author, and longtime public radio host based in Washington, D.C. Over the years, I've covered many stories of people of color going missing in this city, a phenomenon that absorbed the public consciousness in 2017 on social media. When the Washington, D.C. Police Department tried to raise awareness about missing children and teenagers by posting their images on social media, the campaign backfired, sparking some national outrage and fears of an epidemic of missing children of color. One of the most popular stories on our NBC app this week is about missing girls. Our story debunks a fake report that 14 girls went missing from D.C. in just one day. D.C. police told us they're simply sharing missing person cases more often on social media. It all started when a post went viral all over social media, saying young black girls were going missing at an alarming rate in D.C. And amidst the firestorm, that particular post was proven to be untrue. However, behind the social media frenzy was a certain reality that for decades, people of color, particularly women, have been abducted or killed across the capital region, and their cases rarely resolved or even fully investigated. That fact may be why most people have never heard of the Freeway Phantom case, a case that involved six young black girls who were all kidnapped, killed, and discarded along the DC freeways in the early 1970s, a case that was never solved and sadly quickly forgotten. But in the wake of the D.C. missing girls conversation, people started thinking about this case again. One of those people was fellow D.C. journalist Cheryl Thompson, who used to write for the Washington Post. While I was actually working on another story at the Post, I stumbled across this press release of these six little black girls. And the photo struck me because it was in black and white. And so the first thing I thought of, oh, my God, this is old. Like, what is this? And then you just saw these six faces of these six little black girls, and you could tell by their hairstyle and, you know, the bows in their hair. And it sort of gave me pause. And I was like, what, what is this? And why are these murders unsolved? And so that's what sort of prompted me. In 2018, Cheryl published a groundbreaking article about this seemingly uncovered story. And that's how we and thousands of others found out about the Freeway Phantom case. She says the process was both difficult and significant. What it was about it, again, was the fact that, like, how could this be, like, six little black girls 
murdered in the nation's capital. And so then I started researching it and saw that there had been stories, some stories over the years, but it had mainly faded from public view. I asked one of our researchers at the Washington Post to go back. I said, can you find some stories, some microfiche from, you know, back in the early 70s when this happened? And there were stories, but it, we were really hard-pressed to find stories that focused just on these girls. In the early 1970s, it was the Vietnam War, and, you know, D.C. was the place where protesters came. There was a lot going on in the nation's capital during that time. So when murders happened, when killings happened, it made the news, but there were so many killings at the time that they just didn't get the individual attention. Like when I found one of the cases, it was lumped in with some other homicides in the district. But that's just the way it was. I mean, this was the, the murder capital of the country back in the day. Cheryl decided to reach out to some people, and she says her best sources have always been the detectives who worked on the case. I have called some of my sources over the years for stuff that might have happened 30 years ago, and they remember details, right? I'm like, how do you remember this stuff? So I then reached out to Detective Jenkins, Romaine Jenkins, because I figured, man, this is a woman, a black woman, and I know she had to take an interest in this for a lot of reasons, and some of which were the very ones that I mentioned. These kids could have been her daughters. Detective Romaine Jenkins was a name that we kept hearing. We spoke with one of the investigators, Romaine Jenkins, and she, she was like, if it was dictated... There was also another woman by the name of Romaine Jenkins, who was a sex squad detective. One of our Pick apart those files that Romaine's got. It would be an exciting interview. Romaine Jenkins, she was one of the best. She knew all the dope dealers. She knew all their girlfriends. She was friends with all of them. She got the latest scoop. She knew who pulled the trigger. We decided to give Romaine Jenkins a call. Hello, is this Romaine Jenkins? Yes. And we soon realized just how much she knew about this case. I investigated many serial rape cases, and none of them are like this. Usually there's a similar pattern somewhere, but the only pattern you have with these cases is the fact that they were young black females. As it turns out, Romaine was the lead investigator on the Freeway Phantom case in the 1980s. That was almost 10 years after the case went cold. And she was the right person for the job. Romaine had an impressive resume up to that point. As a sergeant in the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., back in the 70s, she was the first woman and the only woman for a long time in homicide. We told Romaine that we were looking into the Freeway Phantom case, and she agreed to sit down with us. But before we made a trip to D.C. to see her, we wanted to learn more about her life and how she eventually came to investigate this case. I am a native person from Washington, D.C. I attended school here. I joined the Metropolitan Police Department June the 21st, 1965. And at that time, um, there were only about maybe 30 police females on the department and they were housed at something called the Woman's Bureau. And they did mostly social work, abandoned children, missing children. Then they joined us with something called the Youth Division, and that was the male counterpart of the Woman's Bureau. And then I stayed there for two years. 
And I basically investigated cases involving battered children, juvenile offenders. We did missing persons and things like that. And then Homicide decided they needed a female to handle their baby deaths and abortion cases, because at that time, abortion was illegal in the District of Columbia. So Romaine went to work in homicide. She was there for approximately four years, investigating battered children and abortion cases. After about four years in the homicide squad, I went to the 7th District, because at that time, they decided they wanted to put police women in uniform and put them in the patrol division. And at that time, I was a supervisor. I was a sergeant, because I made sergeant when I was in homicide. So they wanted to see if females could supervise males in the patrol division. I went to the 7th District, and that was quite an experience. Everything was totally new to me, but I, I made it through. During this time, Romaine got married and started a family. She eventually decided being a patrol officer wasn't what she wanted. So she applied for Sex Squad, which investigates sexually heinous crimes. And I stayed there 10 years as a supervisor. And from there, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office where I supervised seven detectives and we handled cases. We worked up cases for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that's basically what I did. That's basically my career. It was while in homicide in the early 70s that Romaine first heard about the so-called Freeway Phantom murders. Though other officers were assigned to the case, she helped canvas neighborhoods and became intimately familiar with the case details. Years passed, and Romaine heard little about the Freeway Phantom. Fifteen years after the murders in 1987, Romaine decided to reopen the case herself while working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it ended up becoming the case that would consume Romaine's career and life to this day. When we told Romaine we were investigating the Freeway Phantom case, she revealed to us that she had held on to boxes and boxes of evidence, case files, and other documents, even after retiring from the MPD. Now, at 80 years old, Romaine still has those stacks of boxes sitting in her bedroom or scattered across her living room floor. We asked her if we could talk to her in person and look through some of the boxes. At first, she was hesitant. But after we talked about our mutual desire to solve these murders, she started to open up. And eventually, she agreed to an in-person interview. So, the Tenderfoot team met up with me in DC, and we headed to her house. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Oh, he brings them two at a yeah. time. Okay. We got gotcha. you. And we can take them back up if that's... Um, no, you can leave them. Now that you got them down here, leave them here. <laughs> okay. Because they'll either go downstairs, they, they'll probably end up going downstairs. Okay, you want her to sit at the table? No, sit, sit them right here on the floor. Okay. I'm in Romaine Jenkins' home in Washington, D.C., not far from where I live. In her home, Romaine has what's likely the largest collection of documents on the Freeway Phantom case. Open, open those okay, up. Okay, I'm going to open them up for you. All right. I will just pull them out, and we can take a look at what's here. This is uh, Brenda Crockett. Oh my God, she looks, this is the one that, was she the one that That's was barefoot? That's a 10 year old. She's tiny, just a tiny baby. She was the one that went to the store right. barefoot. Right, went to the store barefoot. And the only, the only way she was identified was her mother identified the clothing. That's all they had. The amount of information we came across was astounding. She had crime scene photos, original police reports, suspect lists, most of this, we had never seen before. We asked Romaine how she came to acquire all of these documents. Basically, by talking to detectives who were on the actual scenes of the cases, a lot of them gave me their notebooks, their notes. Some had copies of files, they gave me that. Going to the police department, like Prince George's County, they turned over all their files to me because they microfished the files so they didn't need the hard copies and they were going to dispose of them. So I said, well, I'll take them. So that's how I inherited a lot of that information. Then with the cooperation of the FBI, they assigned a case agent to work with me and I was allowed to go into their files. Well, they assigned me an office and a desk and one of their investigators, and I would go to the FBI building every day and read through documents, and they'd make copies of whatever I needed. Also, with Naval Investigative Services, they were getting ready to get rid of some files, so I was able to make copies of the things that they had. Nobody told me no, even the Metropolitan Police Department. There were people who still had information, and they turned it over to me, so that's how I amassed information in the files. As Romaine said, law enforcement was disposing of the original case files. Had Romaine not tracked down and preserved these files, we would have no original documents to view today. This is significant because information in those boxes may provide new insight into the case. Throughout this podcast, we're going to reveal what we found in those boxes and maybe get one step closer to finding the freeway phantom. But first, we need to take a step back to talk about the basics. What were the Freeway Phantom murders? What happened? We need to go back to the beginning to fully understand this story. The truth is, there's not a ton of existing scholarship on this case. In our research, we came across only two books written about the Freeway Phantom. Most people have never heard of the first book, called The Mystery of the Freeway Phantom, published in 1983 by Wilma W. Harper. Ms. Harper is closely related to these cases, which you'll hear about later. In the book's preface, Harper explains why she wrote it, saying, quote, 
When I first undertook the task of writing a social study of the families and friends associated with the Freeway Phantom cases in September 1972, my one objective was to assist the police department in apprehending the killer or killers of the seven black girls who'd been raped, murdered, and their bodies placed on the various highways around the city of Washington, D.C. It was my belief that the secret of who had killed the girls could be found in one or more of the social institutions frequented by these girls or by their parents. Throughout this podcast, Harper's words will take us back in time and provide us with a firsthand account of what it was like to live through these serial murders. The second book we found was called Tantamount, The Pursuit of the Freeway Phantom Serial Killer, published in 2019. This book was written by a father-daughter team of true crime authors. I'm Blaine Pardo. I've written over 80 books. I write primarily uh, science fiction, true crime, military history, political thrillers, things along those lines. This is a topic we've been writing a lot about, which is true crimes, and we tend to focus on the unsolved cases, especially serial killing cases that remain open over the years. And I'm Victoria Hester. I've written a total of four true crime books alongside my dad and co-author Blaine. The thing that really got me into true crime was actually my dad growing up. Our bonding moment was over the Zodiac, which, go figure, that's a normal father-daughter thing. But uh, ever since then, I've been kind of hooked on true crime, and it's fun to research. We enjoy the journey of research and then putting it all onto paper. We had just finished our book on the Colonial Parkway murders, and we were looking for the next project to get into, and it was really a matter of let's look in the local vicinity because we like dealing with people we can go interview and, and spend time with. So we started looking in Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C., to see if what open cold cases were out there. And there's a lot of them. I outlined a number of them for Victoria and said, okay, you get to pick. This one was kind of an easy one to do in the case of the Freeway Phantom. Looking at this one, it was like, okay, well, this one's got some meat to it. This is an interesting case. We asked Blaine and Victoria to walk us through the basics of the case, starting with the first victim. First one that disappeared was a 13-year-old, Carol Denise Banks. She disappeared on April 25th, 1971. She's found on the Anacostia Freeway, which is I-295. She's about 200 yards south of the Suitland Parkway, and her body's found by a group of children. It's a major freeway cutting right through the city. She had disappeared on the 25th, but wasn't found until April 30th. So the next victim is Darlenia Denise Johnson. Um, The reason why we put the middle names in with each girl is because it does play a huge role down the role in the investigation of the middle name Denise. So that's why we make a point to mention that. She was 16 when she disappeared on July 8th, 1971. Her body was found July 19th. 1971 in the evening. Her mother filed a missing persons report and her body was actually found on the Anacostia Freeway, so the same freeway that Carol Spinks was found off of. Brenda Faye Crockett was 10 years old. She disappeared on July 27th, 1971. Her body was found off of Route 50, uh, which is one of the major thoroughfares uh, in Chevrolet. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. 
She had been left on the grassy shoulder of the John Hanson Highway. She was found face up and it was really only a short period of time after she had disappeared. So the killer had kind of shifted, at least from the first case, he's not spending as much time with the victims. He's killing them and now just dumping them. Just over two months later, the fourth victim was discovered. Her name was Nina Moshe Yates. She was 12 years old and she was found on October 1st, 1971. She was a seventh grader and she was a very quiet and well-behaved child. In the evening, she went to Safeway that was a few blocks away from her home to buy a bag of sugar at 8.45 p.m. Then, a month and a half later, the fifth victim. Brenda Denise Woodard uh, was 18 years old. November 15th, 1971, she disappeared. In the evening, she had gone to a night class, left with a, a young man. They went to Ben's Chili Bowl in D.C., which is this iconic restaurant. And she rode the bus to go home. And she was last seen around the 8th and H Street intersections. But her roommate reported by 1130 that she hadn't come home. She was found along the Baltimore-Washington Parkway as well by a Chevrolet police officer. She had been strangled, and what was different with her is she had also been stabbed. And finally, the following year, the sixth and last confirmed victim. Diane Williams is 17. She was found on September 5th, 1972, 10 months after the last case with Brenda. Her body was found the very next day. She was reported missing by her father when he came home at 8 a.m. that morning. She had visited her boyfriend, which was a pretty normal thing for her to do, and was told to be home by 10.30 the night before. Her boyfriend escorted her to the bus stop, so we know that she got at least to the bus. If you think about it, so many of them are caught going to a grocery store running an errand. It's not like something that's a routine where he's following them for several days and knows their pattern and how to intercept them. These are all victims of opportunity. Six victims, all young black girls from around the same area, all disposed of in identical ways. When we sat down with Romaine Jenkins, we asked her about her first involvement in the case. Well, at the time, when Carol Spinks was murdered, I was in the homicide unit. And at that time, I was the only female in the unit. I was interested in the case, but what happened was we were inundated with the May Day demonstrations. From May 1st to May 5th, 1971, thousands of people gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. This would become the May Day protests, Some 175,000 people from all walks of life with differing ideologies and purposes marched from the White House to the Capitol. More than 5,000 Metropolitan Police Department officers, including Romaine, were tasked with shutting down the demonstrations. By the end of the week, over 12,000 protesters had been arrested. To this day, the largest mass arrest in U.S. history. And so I never got the chance to go and dig into the investigation like I could have. The first day I recall, we were going out on the case and the division commander stopped 
me and said, where are you going? I said, well, we had a little girl murdered over in Southeast and we're going to, to the neighborhood and we're going to work on the case. He says, no, this is May Day demonstrations. This is a red alert for the police department. You will get involved in the demonstrations. But Romaine went home that night and thought more about Carol Spinks. She was familiar with the neighborhood and something just didn't add up. The girls come from neighborhoods that are densely populated with black people. Their kids in and out, their cars going up and down Wheeler Road. You know, there's never a time it's not busy. So you could send your child to the store. Nobody was going to bother your child or what? The neighborhood never even thought like that. No, they were even safer because there's always somebody Some, watching. Right, that's right. And everybody knew everybody. You know, they said, oh, that's Miss So-and-so's daughter. It's time to be in the house. It's close to dark. I mean, and people looked out for each other, you know? I've spent my entire career working in public media as a radio journalist and national talk show host. One of the things that I love about working for public radio is that I rarely have to report on crime. While we never neglect a story about terrorism, mass shootings, or corporate malfeasance, individual crime stories don't generally get coverage. And I like that. I like that I don't have to dig into personal stories of infidelity or rage or greed or interview family members who've just lost a loved one to a drive-by shooting. So you might wonder what I'm doing hosting a podcast series about a string of murders in Washington, D.C., a city that had so many homicides in the early 1990s that it was known as the murder capital of the United States. There's one easy answer to that question and one more complicated answer. The easy answer is that I'm so afraid of serial killers that I'm fascinated by them. They terrify me. I simply can't understand the kind of mind that would take a stranger's life for no reason other than because they enjoy it. That seems more than deranged to me. It seems inhuman. Serial killers are incredibly rare. According to the FBI, less than 1% of murders are committed by a serial killer. But we're also not very good at catching them. The founder of the Murder Accountability Project, a nonprofit that collects information about murders, believes that a good number of unsolved homicides may have been committed by serial killers. So the chance to dig into both the mindset of such a killer and the techniques for finding them was very tempting. More importantly, though, I couldn't understand why the Freeway Phantom had never been caught and why most people have never heard of him. The Phantom killed at least six young girls, probably more. The so-called Son of Sam also killed six people, and there are a bunch of movies about him, and even an episode of Seinfeld. Ed Gein, the Plainfield ghoul who inspired the killers in Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was convicted of killing two people, and may have killed as many as seven. This is not admiration for perpetrators with high body counts, but a legitimate question. How could someone kill so many young girls and be forgotten? The Freeway Phantom is worth talking about because the larger issues that surrounded his killing spree still endanger the lives of girls, and especially black girls. And before we go any further, we want to make an important announcement. After over 50 years of waiting, 
We believe the victims' families deserve answers. That's why Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia are matching the $150,000 reward offered by the Metropolitan Police Department. This brings the total reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for these murders to $300,000. If you have information that may lead to the identification of the Freeway Phantom, it's time to speak up. Tips can be provided to MPD or Tenderfoot TV at tips at tenderfoot.tv. With all of that said, it's time we dig deep into this case. So to fully understand these murders, we need to examine the crimes individually, starting with the very first victim, Carol Spinks. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We grew up at 1034 Walla Place Southeast. Walla Place was on the top part of Valley Green, infamous Valley Green. Very well known for a lot of activity, negative activity, but they're good people in the worst of places. This is Evander Spinks, the older sister of Carol Spinks, the first victim. At the top of the episode, you heard Evander talk about the night that her sister Carol went missing. I can't say my mother was the best person in the world, but my mother took care of us. We could not rip and run the street. We could not go anywhere. You better not talk about no boy. You stay very close to home. We played outside like any normal kids, have races in the street, played kickball, Double Dutch, board games, outside. Water Place was a well-known street, but there were a lot of good families on that street. Things happened on that street that were bad, but we never witnessed anything because we weren't out at night. Whatever happened, we would find out the next day or through your friends. 
if they saw something or their parents saw something and they was discussing it with their girlfriend or boyfriend or do you know how adults talk? There's always one or two kids hanging around listening, <laughs> getting a scoop so that everybody else could know what was going on. But that's how we found out things. Never that we were involved, around, or near, because my mother didn't play that. On April 25th, 1971, the day Carol would go missing, the entire Spinks family, with the exception of their mother, was home. I was home, 14. Carol and Carlin was home, 13. Tanya was home, 12. Warren was home, 11. And Joseph was home, one or two years old. Carol and Carolyn Spinks were twin sisters. Their nicknames were Bebe and Yeye, respectively. They looked identical. They were identical. They could sometimes fool us, but me, not that much because they had different personalities. Bebe Carol was more laid back and quiet. Carl and Yeye, a mouthpiece and a social butterfly. But they stuck together. You wouldn't see one 10 feet further from the other one. They were always together. My mom and all the brothers and sisters, them knew us apart. But some of our own friends that we had outside of the house, some of them knew, some of them didn't. Now, if we dressed alike, you could forget it. This is Carolyn Spinks. She was incredibly close with her twin sister, Carol. Oh, we did all kinds of stuff. We, of course, played dolls, did each other's hair. We dressed alike. We fooled the teachers. We jumped double dutch, played jacks, all kinds of stuff. We did everything together. She was smart. She was very smart. She wasn't as smart mouth as I was. <laughs> she was smart. She was funny. And she was, she was my friend. That was my left hand, because I'm right here. So she was my left hand. That day, I wish, oh my God, I wish I could take it back. I wish I could take that day back. That day, my mom told us, do not go outside. So we always in the house. I don't even remember what we were doing, but I know it was me, Yvonne, and baby, and my baby brother was home, because he was a baby, and my other brother. All of us, all six of us was in the house. And I remember when Battery knocked on the door and said, she wants somebody to go to the store? And he's like, no, Mom said, no. Mom said, don't go out. I don't know what made her say, I'll go. I don't know. But I was like, I ain't going. Mom gonna get us. I ain't getting no beating. And my mother didn't play. But for whatever reason, Carol volunteered to go to the store. And so, off she went. Didn't think nothing of it right then and there. The next thing I knew, I was like, wait a minute. She ain't come back. And I remember I said that. I went out that door. I'm like, no, I got to go to a battery. She ain't come back. We got to go to the store. And I remember me and Valerie went to the store, and we asked the man, did he see it? And he said, yeah, he seen a girl look just like me. And she had her, she got her stuff. And that was it. We came back home. We called my mother. And then she came home. And then she called the police. I remember she called the police. And they said they can't do nothing. Do you remember why they said they couldn't do anything? Because they said you got to be 24 hours. I remember that. 
what, in like a couple of hours? No, something ain't right. Mm-mm. I knew something was wrong. I knew it. I told Valerie something wrong, something wrong. Mm-mm. During that time when you didn't know what had happened to her, when she was just missing, mm-hmm. what were you thinking had happened? I thought somebody had got her and did something to her. You did? I knew something had happened to her. I knew it did. Because she wouldn't run away. We never ran away from home. We never did any of that. So I already knew something was wrong. I knew something bad had happened. I knew that. I just didn't know what. But after like the second day, that's when I started feeling the pains. <sighs> and I used to sit on the bottom bunk of the bed and just rock. And I would get pains and I would, I'd be in and out, in and out. Oh my God, it was terrible. It was, oh God, it was the worst. It was the worst. I still feel pain to this day. Search parties were dispatched. The community was determined to find Carol, but they never did. And then, according to the official reports, five days after Carol Spinks' disappearance, a group of kids were playing by the side of Interstate 295 when they discovered Carol's body. But Romaine Jenkins has always been skeptical of this report. Here's how she described it when we talked to her over the phone. There's no indication how her body was discovered, no. After the crowd gets there, of course they call the police. But what initially caused somebody to say there's a body on 295? I don't, I don't understand it. Why would the kids even, kids wouldn't even be playing on 295. There's nothing. There's no reason for them to have been there unless they were told there was a body and they went to see what it was, you know. But who said, who started it? Even though when she was missing, you know, they had lots of groups out searching for her and so forth. But there was just nothing. But for someone to jump over the rail and, and turn that body over, man, people just don't do that. Most people don't even want to see a dead body. My mind questions a lot of things. We were curious to see what Romaine was talking about. So we found the coordinates for where Carol's body had been found right off the I-295 highway. Just to our right, you can see in the distance Suitland Parkway. And the police reports say that Carol Spinks' body was found about 1,500 feet south of Suitland, which is about where we are. The thing is, is that, you know, Romaine brought up the idea that why were there people near here to find the body? And I gotta say, she has a point. I mean, even 50 years ago, this would have still been an industrial park. There's nothing here. There's no stores. There's no homes. This is clearly a highway access road with nothing but industrial buildings. And you can look at these buildings, and even though Verizon is in them now, these buildings have been here for 50 years. So what were they doing here? Why were they walking along the highway? And again, remember, we're talking about a highway that didn't have these lights. It would have been dark and I just, she, she really has a point. How could they have stumbled on this body? It just, over and over in this case, you think somebody knew something. Someone did. It seems impossible. But here, here we are. And you have to imagine as you're standing at I-295, and obviously I-295 did not have this many lanes back then. We saw the photos. But you have to imagine someone just driving up this highway with a dead girl's body in their car stopping the car right here, pulling her body out of his car and then placing it. It's distressing and incomprehensible, 
Yeah. Carolyn Spink says she doesn't remember much about hearing that Carol was dead, only that she remembers feeling it. I felt when he was killing her, he was gone all them days. I felt everything. What did your family say to you? They knew something was wrong with me. They knew something was wrong. Because I used to sit and rock. Just sit on the bed and rock. And rock and cry. And hold myself. I knew something was wrong. Something was hurting. A few days later, the family held a public funeral for Carol. Oh, my God. That was the worst day of my life. I didn't know what it was. I had never been to a funeral before, so we did I didn't know what it was. We went to this funeral home. First, I remember they took us to get these white dresses and shoes and stuff. And then we went in this funeral home and they had this noise. I guess it was the piano or whatever it is. And that noise, ooh, terrible. And then they had the big gray casket. I didn't know what it was, but it was closed. I remember that, it was closed. And I remember all these people. It was so many people. I remember it was so many people. And then we opened the casket and I said, I asked them, who was that? And they said, that's my sister. And I said, no, it's not. When I looked at that face, I was like, oh my God, who is that? He looked like a monster. And they said, I, I passed out or something. Something happened to me. I don't know what happened. Well. When I woke up, the next day I remember we was back at home. I don't remember anything else. So you said your family never talked about it. After the funeral, nobody even mentioned her? They did, but I'd never want to hear it. I didn't want to hear it. And you think that it wasn't until you were an adult that you were able to Mm -hmm. hear about her Mm -hmm. or talk about her? Yeah. Actually... It was after I got married to my husband who lived on our block. He knew my sister. When he told me, one day we talked about it, because we never even talked about it for a long time. But he told me he carried my sister casket. I said, no, you didn't. He said, yes, I did. My mother had a book, a whole book of the funeral. And I was always, I never wanted to look at it. But this one, um, my mother was still living. So one day I just went over, went to, went to look at the book, and I saw him carrying her casket. And when he told me that, that's when I said, I, I need to talk. I needed to talk to somebody because I just can't, couldn't keep holding it because I know it was hurting. It was hurting me. After a while, after I had my kids, and my sister told my kids, that's when I just started trying to talk about it. Me and my husband would talk a little bit from time to time, but I didn't want to talk about it. There was nothing to talk about. Have you talked with others in your family since then? Yes. Mostly me and my sister Yvonne talk about it more than anybody, but not nobody else, really. Yvonne is Evander Spinks. My brothers have never mentioned it one way or the other. Carlin, it hurts her. She has never wanted to talk about it. And I've always wanted to talk about it because I can't forget my sister Valerie has never talked or spoke about it that I know of. So I had to, over the years, keep talking to Yeye, Carlin, about it. And I know she can't forget, but I know she hurts behind it. That's why her entire life changed. 
and it wasn't for the better. Totally the wrong way. I think the first time all of us got together was a couple of years ago because it bothered me all my life that I could go and sit where I knew my sister's body was, but there was nothing there to show me that she was there. So we gotta talk about it. It's a hurtful thing, but we gotta do it. And you just never know, something could pop up. Something just might get triggered, or you may have seen something or heard something. We don't want to do it. It's not like we want to be recognized because we still get recognized. As soon as somebody hear the name Spinks, oh, Spinks, Spinks. Oh, I know about the Spinks family. You don't know about the Spinks family. You only know about the incident that happened to the Spinks family. My sister was an innocent little girl. People say, you know, these kids fast, they grown. She was out there having sex. <laughs> Not with my mother. That's a no. She was an innocent little girl that was taken from her family and abused. We want to know why. As a, a young teenager, I don't think the police did a good job. I didn't feel as though they actually cared during that time. And as an adult, I know they didn't do a good job. And I know damn well they didn't care. And today, I'll be 65 years old this month. And I still feel like they don't give a damn. It probably was the police or somebody that worked with the police. That's the only thing really made sense to me. People are everywhere. Somebody saw it. And we still want to know. And it still hurts. We just want to know why and what happened. Homicide detectives termed the cases the little girl cases. This child was uh, laying on the side of the road. I wouldn't go nowhere. I wouldn't come out my house. Those first five murders should have been a huge warning bell for the police. We just want to know what happened. This person must have saw that they were thinking that maybe it's just one person. And he says, uh-uh, they need to know. This is me. I thought that they would catch him. I thought it was just a matter of time. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Freeway Phantom. Next time on Freeway Phantom. People were scared. I mean, parents were scared, children were scared. They wanted to know what more police could do. What were they doing? He kept her for several days as a prisoner. Did you know that you could be next? When the first victims went missing, there was a really a kind of a muted police response. You follow a lead until it takes you nowhere. They got all kinds of leads. Everybody was a suspect. I got home from the store about 6, 10 p.m. and asked the kids if Darlene had been home, and they said they hadn't seen her. I sent the kids around in the next court, and they asked the people if they had seen Darlene, and they said no. 
Roy said that there was a body of a dead lady out there. He told us that he'd notified the police, but the body was still out there. Freeway Phantom is a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. Our host is Celeste Hidley. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Hidley. Executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio include Matt Frederick and Alex Williams with supervising producer Trevor Young. Executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV include Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay with producers Jamie Albright and Tracy Kaplan. Executive producers on behalf of Black Bar Mitzvah include myself, Jay Ellis, and Aaron Bergman with producer Sidney Foos. Lead researcher is Jamie Albright. Artwork by Mr. Soul 216. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia, as well as Black Bar Mitzvah, have increased the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the Freeway Phantom murders. The previous reward of up to $150,000 offered by the Metropolitan Police Department has been matched. A new total reward of up to $300,000 is now being offered. If you have any information relating to these unsolved crimes, contact the Metropolitan Police Department at area code 202-727-9099. For more information, please visit freeway-phantom.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.